Benghazi, Whitewater, ICE, ICE Retention Centers, Obamacare, Russian interference with elections, filibustering Supreme Court nominees, tax cuts for the wealthiest 1%, regulation, deregulation, even if you want to bury your face in the sand. It is impossible to get away from politics. Even if I just want to watch a ball game and unwind after church, after a tiring Sunday, I'm still going to get a slew of partisan ads during every commercial break. Even if I block every single one of you political trolls on social media, I'm still going to see people that only seem to use social media as a platform to spew their partisan hatred. We live in a day, an age, where it's very simple to do because complex arguments that people have spent years and years thinking about and developing have been reduced to one-line memes that we post pictures of on the internet. By way of preface, I was going to say I do not preach on politics, but it's impossible when preaching the text, and that's why we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. It sounds really spiritual to say I don't preach on politics, doesn't it? Just like it sounds like you're being very pious to say I don't preach about money. The problem is if you're choosing to say I don't preach about politics, you are potentially leaving out huge segments of the Bible. I'm gonna tell you I wrestled with this because I'm not a political guy. I find most people that are um, overly political to be tiring to be around, and um, I usually choose not to be around them. Um, when I come in your house, if you're wearing Fox, if you're just watching Fox News on constant loop, I ask you to turn it off before I'll have a conversation with you. Some of you know that, right, Jim? Um, um, I think that the statement that people are looking for is I'm not going to preach a political agenda or partisan politics that detract from the preaching of the gospel. That's what we're trying to say here. But to say that we're not going to deal with government from pulpits is going to leave out some of the most beloved scriptures from the whole Bible. Take a Christmas promise, for one. For us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, but shh, don't talk about that. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his shh, government and peace, there will be no end. And the throne of David and over his kingdom and to establish it and uphold it in justice and righteousness from this time forever forth and the zeal of hosts will do this. Say what you want, but the bulk of that nice verse that you probably hang on your Christmas tree every year deals with the government. So if you feel that the government has no place in the church, go home and start smashing Christmas ornaments. The entire Sermon on the Mount, particularly 
the Beatitudes, where Jesus tells a group of peasants who are under the rule of the most powerful empire ever, mind you, that they will have an uprising of righteousness and there will be a new kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, that will someday supplant the government of this world and King Jesus will rule on his throne and make right that which is wrong. That's political. That has to do with the government. If you need more proof, go home and read Romans 12, Romans 13, 1 Timothy 2, Colossians 4, or any number of a dozens and dozens of other scriptures I could give you. I'll be frank with you. The church has erred in two big ways in dealing with government from the pulpit. Not addressing it all and making it seem as if it's spiritual to not address it at all, leaving it to people to just grapple with complex issues while those who are supposed to be the disciple makers and supposed to be skilled with the scriptures and help you to bring them to bear on day-to-day life remain silent, but then hypocritically wondering why their people so immaturely snipe at each other over politically charged issues. Or addressing only ultra-conservative right-wing politics to the point of creating an echo chamber inside the church and casting doubt on authenticity of the Christianity of anyone who would dare to disagree with them. Sure, I'm already offended somebody with that statement. Thankfully, I don't care. Instead of saying that I don't preach about politics, we should be restating it as a positive and a negative. The negative, we do not preach partisan politics here because Jesus didn't preach partisan politics. We preach what the Bible has to say on a great number of topics with the gospel as the focal lens of that. And we do not endorse man who is bound to fall. And we do not endorse candidates that make borderline messianic claims. Positively put, the Bible does have a lot to say about government. And when we get to those texts, we should preach them fairly and accurately and good use, good hermeneutics and study them so that we could study to show ourselves approved. So this passage combines everybody's favorite topics to deal with at a party, politics and religion. So in other words, the next time you're at a party and everybody's just kicking it up, pop in the sermon tape of this message, and I guarantee you, you will be a hit. So as, get hit. As I studied for this passage, I was just absolutely stunned by the poignancy, especially as being a pretty non-political guy. I think it would be good for us to see the things that we're wrestling with and that we're not wrestling with them for the first time in history. That's what I want. If you want to take away, Jonathan Edwards did something really neat in his messages. He would give you the takeaway in the very first paragraph of his introduction So if you ended up snoozing for the rest of the 40 minutes, you knew what he was going to preach on. So the takeaway is the things that you're wrestling with just because the news might have blabbering, talking heads about them 24-7. It is not the first time these things have been wrestled with in the history of humanity. That's going to be the thesis. We have a media that tries to create something apocalyptic out of every single story because they know that sensationalizing creates polarization, which creates clicks, views, ads, and money. 
If I can say one thing to that, don't believe the hype. If you want to know how it's going to end, try reading your Bible. There's a whole book on it at the end of the book. If you're concerned with the current apocalyptic nature of the political climate and that it's going to lead to the end of the world, well then act like you believe the end of the world is ending and go and preach the gospel to somebody without the hope of Jesus in their life. Because if you really believe that the world was ending and you know the gospel and you're not sharing it, you're selfish. And if you desire to discourse, do so within a biblical framework and be biblically literate enough to have a biblical worldview on the things that you discuss, not just seeing who can shout their opinion louder than everybody else. You can turn to Ecclesiastes 8, and that's where we're going to spend our time. Even though Solomon didn't really preface anything, there are a few things that are probably worth prefacing before we get into this text. Some of them may sound silly to you, but I assure you that they're not, because I wouldn't be prefacing them if there wasn't any real provocation to do so. First of all, Solomon was not writing this to the current American political climate. I'm going to go a step further and even tell you that Solomon himself was not an American. <laughs> Solomon, like most of the world, did not see things the same way that people do in America. There are common issues that are going to be dealt with here that have been dealt with for thousands of years. Though times have changed and many of the issues that we face have changed, what we're going to see in the text, hopefully, if it's preached well, is that the heart behind the issues remains the same. And last, this is not about right versus right, left. And if tangent, sorry, I meet so many Christians that spend the bulk of their conversations talking about right versus left. Don't you honestly hope that the people on the other side are going to be spending eternity with you? I mean, do you really hate somebody because of their political views so much that you want them to be spending eternity apart from Christ? Can you really hate somebody that much over politics? Really? So we're not going to be approaching this right versus left. And if you are you might want to consider repenting. Ultimately, this is not going to be a message about politics, but about principles in navigating a crazy, confusing world. Principles that are thousands of years old, but still as poignant as ever. So in verse 1, Solomon starts off by asking what wisdom is all about, and then takes another stab at a question he's asked for all seven chapters previously, but from another angle. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So he wants to know wisdom as he's approaching the current political climate that he's dealing with. That alone could be a sermon, couldn't it? Just seeking godly wisdom when trying to figure out the political landscape that's in front of us. And then what he's going to go into is on a pretty long excursus about how the king is going to do exactly what he wants to do 
and unjust rulers have always been with us, and they will always be with us until the real king is seated on the throne. Look at verses 2 through 6. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a commandment will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy upon him. I'd like to point out that there's a succession of commandments in this passage, and they're simply stated as such. They're stated as commandments. So in verse 2, he says, keep the king's command. In verse 3, don't be hasty to go out from the king's presence. And in verse 4, watch how and what you take a stand for. So let's break it down a little bit. Keep the king's command. And the reason that he gives is interesting. This is called a parenthetical clause. Keep the king's command because of the reason I'm about to give. And then he gives the reason because of God's oath to him. Which can mean two things. It can mean either a narrow view... It could be taken to be talking about ancient Israel and the Davidic line and the commandment that was made in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to the descendants of David saying, I've made an oath to you that there will always be somebody seated on the throne of David and that was made by an oath by God or a wider view that if anyone is in power, it's because a sovereign God has allowed it. More of a Daniel kind of view that the heart of the king is in the hands of God for his sovereign purposes. I choose the wider view because it seems like he's talking about plural kings in this passage and referring to kings who have already ruled unwisely and even died. And there was only one king in Jerusalem before Solomon. So it couldn't be talking about a great many kings who have ever ruled. So that just wouldn't fit the context of ancient Israel. So we're actually supposed to pause and think God in his infinite wisdom allowed this person to be put in place. Sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad. God allowed, think about this, his very son to be born under a king, a tyrant, Herod. I don't care what you think of Trump. I don't care what you thought of Obama. I don't care what you thought of Clinton. I don't care if you're old enough what you thought of I don't know, Calvin Coolidge, FDR. Um, <laughs> they are not as wicked as Herod was. What, what presidents of ours have ever just gone out and slaughtered an entire genocide, an entire town of babies because they were afraid that somebody would come and usurp their power? Has that happened in your lifetime? It's not happened. In mind. God allowed his son to be crucified under the most painful form of torture that's ever been devised in the wickedness of man's mind. He allowed his son to be born, as Galatians says, in the fullness of time, and that was when he chose the fullness of time would come. Do you think God was surprised by the wickedness that was taking place? God allowed every one of the apostles, aside from John, to be wiped out under the reign of Nero. So it's not like God didn't take heed to his own counsel. 
It's not like God is telling you to look at some kind of advice here that he himself was not willing to follow. So where does civil disobedience come in? I mean, as a guy who used to have dreadlocks down to here and live in a VW bus and wear my tie-dyes and peace signs, you know, I look at a question like this and say, where's the protest, man? You know, power to the people. And it's in here, actually. We're going to get into that. But the short answer is we're never called to sin for the sake of our government, and we're never called to deny our Savior. And any time that we're asked to do so, that would be the place where civil disobedience would come in. We're not called to execute tyranny or injustice upon any. And any time you're called so, that's when civil disobedience comes in. But I encourage you to consider the example of Jesus and how Jesus was able to endure under a more corrupt system than you are and how he didn't make it about the corrupt system that he was dealing with. So this passage also instructs us how to be wise in what it is that we stand for. Look, the kings of the earth, this is, I'm not trying to insult anyone's intelligence as they say this, but I really want you to think globally. We just prayed for our missionaries in places like Indonesia and and the Philippines and and Spain, um, the Middle East. The kings of the earth are not limited to Trump. They're not limited to whatever nation that we're playing nice with, and they're not limited to whatever nation CNN feels like we should report to become their next ratings center. It's a big world out there, and guess what? 90% of the world goes unreported about every single day because sharing about the poverty in Nairobi, sharing about the AIDS epidemic in Africa, that doesn't boost ratings, folks. That doesn't make you start to think, oh, wow, something apocalyptic. Let me get out my Bible and see where this... No, that's just poor people dying, and they don't have televisions, and it doesn't make the news. There have been unjust leaders and unjust wars ever since uh, Cain and Abel. That's probably where it started. And there's some going on right now that guess what? You have no clue that they're even happening. There's wars happening right now. There are warlords in countries right now raping, pillaging, murdering. And unless you're just glued to the voice of the martyrs, and I hope you are because it's a great tool, you might have no clue that this stuff is happening. The world is bigger than this small slice of it that we live in. The world just hit 7 billion people. We're 400 million of it. You do the math. We don't even, we're not even like a percentage point of the real size of the rest of the world. And this is why we must have a global mindset and understand that we only experience a very small portion of what's happening in the world. And even what we do experience and understand has usually been pre-digested by somebody else by the time it's been given to us. So we get their propaganda-filled slant. I'm really holding back today. I'm sorry. Look, I, I, I just, the reason why I want to be so strong is because you can't be a faithful missionary without a global mindset. 
Think of the way that the apostles wrote to the churches. Simon Peter starts his first letter where he says, I, Simon Peter, writing to the saints scattered in Pontius, Bithynia, Galatia. He cared about what the empire was doing in spreading out these saints throughout the world. In Revelation, Jesus himself addresses the injustice happening at the church in Ephesus in Philadelphia. And he encourages them, look, I know that you live where Satan's throne is. I know that you have continued to endure persecution. Do not grow weary under the persecution that you face. So this was such a big deal, having a global mindset, that Jesus himself took a portion of the last letter to say, look, I I understand what you're going through. I'm coming soon. And I'm going to make it right. So where does civil disobedience fit into this? Look at verses 5 and 6 again. It says, Whoever keeps a commandment will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy upon him. So he's saying your heart provided that you have a regenerate heart, meaning that you trust in Jesus, that you're seeking his wisdom, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, like we discussed last week, it's going to know the right way. You do not fight injustice with injustice. Dr. King knew that, didn't he? And a great many of others have known that, that we'll never win the war of injustice with more injustice. As it's been said, if we all go eye for an eye, the whole world goes blind. You also don't ignore your, uh, your heart, but you don't go right after vengeance. You trust that your Lord avenges his children. He says that there is a time and a way for everything, but that time and that way are slow, and they come with thoughtful contemplation. But these things are lost in a Twitter world where the whole decrees on nations. Think about the world we live in in this. Decrees on nations are made in seconds in 140 characters or less. And by the time somebody has hit that send button from their toilet at 3 in the morning, there are multiple partisan articles breaking down the significance of that tweet. Can we just listen to that statement again and consider where we are as the significance of a tweet? Like, what? Where are we? Where does contemplation fit into the equation? That used to be the role of the university. But now the university has become an echo chamber for indoctrination, not a place to feed contemplation, like verse 6 suggests. Which, in my opinion is why we see so many angry students who would like to throw rocks first and ask questions later. If you don't believe me, look at the results of some of the debates that have supposed to take place on some of the campuses in recent years. But as Christians, we should be keenly aware that the earth, the earthly king's power is more limited than we want to give it credit for. Look at verses 7 through 9. For he does not know what it is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? 
No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of the death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So it's saying he could be the most powerful king who ever lived, but eventually he's going to meet the same fate as everybody else. Solomon says that they might have the power, in verse 7, to retain all of the power in the world. But there's one thing that none of them have ever had power over. They've never been able to defeat the power of death. Think through the greatest historical examples of earthly kings. Alexander the Great, who started his reign at the age of 13, and by the age of 30, took over the entire new world or a known world, died at the age of 30, handed it off to his four idiot sons who then squandered it. Charlemagne, same fate. Attila the Hun, first person to have the guts to go and say, I'm going to go into the belly of the beast and I'm going to sack Rome. <laughs> you got to admit, like, if you like history, that is like, that's a gutsy move. I, I, don't, I don't agree with his tactics. That's why he was called the scourge of God, because he was a pretty rough dude. But the largest ex, he's credited with the largest expansion of an empire ever during a lifetime, and he died at the age of 46. There's only one king ever who had the power to say to the greatest empire ever, I choose not to be dead today, and I'm going to walk out of a grave and by killing me, you only made me stronger. And now I'm going to start a revolution that will take over the world. One king. As each of these rulers rise up, God's the only one whose reign continues to be consistent and continues to grow. If you want some perspective on this, read Psalm chapter 2. As a matter of fact, turn over there. It's just a couple of pages over to the left. One of my favorite psalms to pray through, and you'll see why. Why do the nations rage? Why do all the peoples plot in vain? Meaning, why are you bugging? The kings of the earth, they set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together. Does that mean all these wicked people, they're all coming together? They're making their secret plans in their secret little Illuminati room. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm not going there. Um, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Listen, <laughs> he who sits in heaven laughs. <laughs> the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I set my king on Zion, my holy hill, saying, like when all of the most powerful people in the world all conspired to come together against God, he looked down on it and he chuckled and he said, I'll stick my king where I'll stick my king and my king's going to win. And I will tell of this decree, the Lord says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is the verse that I pray just so often. Ask of me, and I will give of the nations as your inheritance. I'll come back to that in a minute. But do you think the Lord ever once, think about this. Please leave here with this mindset. Do you think the Lord has ever once said, uh-oh, North Korea has ballistic missiles. 
that used to be able to reach 2,500 miles, but now they can reach 3,000 miles. Um, Iran can now enrich uranium. It says that he laughs as he looks at all this. And you know what else he says in verse 8? Ask me. Ask me. And I'll give the nations as your inheritance. Pray. And he just might send the revival we need. Man, I was lying. The other point was not the point to walk away. Walk away with this point right here. When's the last time you honestly got on your face and prayed for revival? I'm not saying like, Lord, it sure would be nice if this was a more comfortable place to live in and, and an easier place to retire to and taxes weren't so high. I mean like, God, please. Like you're crying out to him saying this is the revival that we need. Look, the reason I'm passionate about this is because this is what I've devoted my life to. I've devoted my life to church planting on the Jersey Shore because I took God at this promise right here in Psalm 2.8. I didn't ask for a nation. I asked for a little peace in one of the lousiest states in this country. <laughs> a state where people would say, New Jersey, has anything good ever come from New Jersey? Man, I want the answer to be, yeah, the greatest revival of our generation came right here from the Jersey Shore. We saw a revival in the Garden State that years from now, should the Lord tarry, history books will be writing about. It started in Wales in 1903. You want to know how the great Welsh revival that changed the entire nation started? A youth group meeting where a little girl named Flory Evans stood up on a chair and she screamed, Come Lord Jesus! And you know what he did? He came. He showed up and it changed the fate of a nation. So if I'm told I can ask for a nation, you better believe I'm going to ask for Tom's River. You better believe I'm asking for Point Pleasant, that I'm asking for Bricktown. I'm asking for Manasquan. I'm saying enough of these suicides that I've been seeing from young people around here, enough depression, enough of send the revival we need. You told me I can ask James says you have not because you ask not. Well, I'm asking, can we have it? Not for our glory, but for yours. I want to see 50 churches planted on the Jersey Shore in the next 10 years. Do you believe that? Brothers and sisters, the comfort that Solomon missed is there is nothing that goes on outside God's ability to see it. God's not oblivious. He's fully aware Whatever you've come here with, God knows about it. As we finish up our verses for this morning, just like unjust rulers have always existed, religious phonies have always existed as well. He seems to have a hard time with that. Anybody here have a hard time with religious hypocrites? I won't even look up, but man, they, they bother me. In verses 10 and 11, he says, Then I saw... The wicked buried, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such great things. This is also vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully set.
to do evil. So Solomon's genuinely struggling with the fact that there's people who are seen very highly in religious circles just to help their popularity. Man, that would never happen in 2018, right? These accusations are partially jaded and they're partially true. Grandstanding religious hypocrisy is partially is particularly dangerous and it's disgusting when it's coupled with a political agenda. And you know what's even more disgusting? Is often it works. Maybe instead of allowing it to become the next news reality show, we should allow a 3,000-year-old book to tell us that it always existed. The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? And in verse 10, he seems to be talking about the kings in the previous verses. And he's saying, I'm really struggling with the fact that these people do atrocious things. Then they go down to the houses of worship. And they're honored by those who are attending the houses of worship. Look again at verse 10. Then I saw the wicked buried. And they used to go down to the holy place. And they were praised when they would go down there. So, it's like he's asking... Do you really think that they're worshiping the one true God just because they pander to him when it's convenient to make a public showing of it to try to be able to appeal to a voter base? Do you think this still happens today? Maybe instead of judging based off of the religious affiliations that a candidate claims to hold to, we should actually look at the fruit in their lives. Amen? And guys, I'm just telling you, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. Um, I voted for the guy that didn't know what Aleppo was. So, um, (laughs) strike that, I didn't, I'm kidding. Um, So I'm not trying to be partisan or take any sides here, but it, it bothers me so much when I hear, oh, he claims to be a Baptist. He claims to be a Presbyterian. You know, he might say that Muslims worship the same God and um, might not believe that the unborn really have any right to life, um, but he, he claims that his grandfather used to take him to church. Solomon seemed to suggest that this was hypocrisy. Solomon says something really profound again in verse 11. He says, just because justice is not executed swiftly, it causes some people to continue in their wickedness. So basically, people can feel empowered to continue because they feel like there's going to be no consequences. Basically meaning that just because, if you want to break it down, if you want to use vernacular of the day, just because God doesn't take you out immediately, you're content, they're empowered to continue in their bad behavior. Sometimes people will ask me on the difficult texts like Uzzah in um, 1 Samuel 6, um, Acts 6 with Ananias and Sapphira. Don't be in a chapter 6, I guess, if you don't want something bad to happen to you. Um, but why God executes judgment so swiftly. But verse 11 seems to ask from the opposite perspective. Maybe instead of asking why God took people out so swiftly, we should ask the other way around. God, why are you so continually gracious to a sinner like me when I've done 1,000 things 1,000 times worse so many times. And it all comes back to grace, doesn't it? Grace makes people really uncomfortable. What Solomon is asking, why are you so gracious to these phonies, God? That's really the theme of this book. He keeps looking at people that are doing, 
all of these unjust things and he can't get it. God, why? Why are you so good? Stop being so gracious. Why don't you just expose them for the frauds that they are? You know, people can talk all the grace they want, but they struggle with seeing people that they deem deem undeserving of grace receiving the grace of God, which is ironic because you are just as undeserving as the person that you might deem to be undeserving. If we deserved it, we wouldn't need grace, right? That's the beauty of grace. It was the biggest problem that people had when Jesus walked the earth. If Jesus really knew what kind of woman this this was, he wouldn't let her near him. A.K.A., why does she get grace? I got a rock in my hand I'm ready to chuck. How can you tell this crippled man that his sins are forgiven? A.K.A., who are you to give this man grace when we have a religious service going on down here? How can you forgive the sins of people who have never been religious when we worked our whole life for favor? A.K.A., how do the common people receive grace? Solomon's wrestlings often came back to grace. Why are you gracious with the man who goes after unjust gain? Why does the righteous farmer and the unrighteous farmer get the same share of the rain and the same yield from their crops? Why does the righteous man die in his young age, but the unrighteous man lives to a ripe old age? In other words, God, I don't understand why you choose to be gracious to whom you choose to be gracious to. Hence, the whole magisterial scandal of grace. If you could wrap your mind around it, it wouldn't be grace any longer. And then, God, what happens to justice? God is gracious, but brothers and sisters, God is also just. He is not always working at the pace that we think that he should be at, and that's why we get so frustrated, right? Where is the justice? But then we look at the cross, where he took grace and justice and poured them out in ways that we never could have scripted or expected, could we? And at that moment, to quote Francis Chan, all we could do is bow and worship and say, God, I thank you that your grace and your sense of justice is far more developed than mine. So the answer to not getting bent out of shape over hypocrisy or making an idol out of politics is one and the same. Spend your life fearing the right king. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know it will be well for those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well forever for the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not have fear before God. So Solomon concludes the same thing about the wicked ruler and the religious phony. It's not going to go well for them. God's not oblivious. And the reason that he gives at the end of verse 13 is because neither fear God. When you have no fear of God, you basically believe yourself to be God, which is what we dealt with last week. In the last verses, Solomon shows that fighting against the will of God is more fruitless than fighting against an evil king. 
He says, there's a vanity that takes place on the earth and there is righteous people who make it happen according to the deeds of the way of the wicked and the wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this is also vanity and I commend joy for this man is nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful for this will go with him in his days of toil and the days of life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and see business that is done under the earth and neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out. I mean, God's doing things behind the scene you have no clue about. And the work that is done under the sun However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he will not find it out. So this passage is about going against the futility of going against the powerful and against the king. How much more fruitless to go against a benevolent and kind God. I want to ask you this morning, have you been finding yourself in the place of fighting against the king of kings? Stomping your feet against his will, believing that he should be doing something in your life differently than it is, saying my will be done instead of thy will be done. If fighting an earthly king is fruitless, why fight against the all-powerful and almighty one? And aside from that, he loves you, and every plan that he's made for you is forged in his love for you. So what is there to even fight against? And he gives an interesting piece of advice. How about instead of being so stuffy and religious, go eat, drink, and be merry. Go eat a pizza and just knock it off. That's what he's saying. Unless you're gluten intolerant. then um, like <laughs> It's like many things. Solomon's figuring it out. And he's partially right here. The world could use more merriment, but they think that they're going to get it the wrong way. If we only had the right ruler in place, the people that wanted Obama out, and if we only had the right ruler in place, the people that wanted Trump in, if we only had the right ruler in place, the people that want Trump out think that utopia will come and we get the right ruler in place. This world will never be a utopia. Genesis 3 created that. And it's never been a utopia ever since. And it's not going to be until the king of kings comes and reclaims his bride and comes and makes it all right. If you have anything, that if only these circumstances, then I'll be happy. If if there's any other answer, if only your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is the only answer for that, then you're looking at the wrong place. So let me give you a little bit of application. Do not forget that God is sovereign when it comes to politics the next time that you want to get bent out of shape. Point two. Don't hurt me afterwards if I offended you. Um, No, that's not really. Have politics become a God to you? If you make statements like, I can never respect someone who, then you might want to look at Jesus' commandments to love your enemies and ask yourself, what does it really mean to love your enemy? What does it mean to just not just say, I'm going to love those who agree with me, who agree with my agenda, but I'm going to love those on the other side of the fence? And what would it look like to extend a hand rather than throw a rock? Have you ever asked that he would give the nations as your inheritance? 
Have you earnestly begged for revival, refusing to accept the status quo? Let me ask that again. As you look at the status quo, have you allowed your heart to become jaded and just say the status quo is what it is? Or have you taken Psalm 2.8 at its promise and say, I refuse to accept the status quo for what it is because someday my Messiah is going to reign. And if he should not come back today, then I'm going to pray for revival until he comes because the status quo is unacceptable. Here's a biggie. Do you spend more time complaining about politics online or getting on your knees and asking God for revival? This week. Have you spent more time complaining about politicians that you're commanded by Scripture to pray for and to honor? Or have you spent more time on your knees on their behalf and praying for revival? Are there areas where you're doing things to be noticed by others rather than for pure worship of God? And are there any areas that you know that you're fighting against the will of God in your life? Why fight him? He loves you. God, thank you so much for being a loving and benevolent King. Lord, may we approach those whom we even deem as enemies in love as you did for us when you shed your blood for us, not while we were friends, but while we were enemies, that you died for us, the just for the unjust. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.